We're looking at the uh, book of Malachi today. It's the last book in the Old Testament. And I don't know about you, but Malachi is all about getting the message. Basically, that's what it's all about. And sometimes we, we send messages to people in different ways, don't we? So, you know, we might send somebody a text message asking them to do something. We might give them a call. We might send them a letter if we, uh, you know, we're not too good on the old email. Or we might email Sometimes, now nobody told me this before I got married, but when you're married, a subtle suggestion means do this. But I didn't realise that until I got married, and I found that out several times after that, that when it's subtly suggested, the message is do this. Um, Malachi is not a book of subtle suggestions. There's an awful lot in it. And it's, um, yeah, there's a lot to get through, so we'll try and rattle on through. So, can you give us the picture, please, Rob? Great. So, we're looking at Malachi today, and Malachi is back here. He is the last of the minor prophets. So, we've gone from here, when there was the divided kingdom. You had Israel in the north and Judah in the south. Then here, we had the Assyrian exile, where a lot of the people were taken off to Assyria. Babylon then came in, took over the Assyrian Empire, and did a bit more exiling. And we looked at Obadiah last week. And this week, we're looking after the people have come back from exile in Babylon. Um, well, Daniel's been writing his book, Ezekiel's been writing his prophecy, and after Haggai and Zechariah have prophesied, the people from Babylon come back, and they live united again for about 600 years, five, 600 years, um, before Jesus comes. So after Malachi prophesies in about 420 B.C., there's nothing that happens really between then and Jesus coming. God stops speaking to his people through a prophet and there's a big gap. So there's an interesting, you know, there's a lot of interesting political stuff goes on in that big gap, but we're not looking at that today. So about 420 BC, Malachi prophesies. He's a, his name means my messenger. So it's like sometimes when people are given a name, it turns out that the, the child grows up to sort of fulfill the name that they've been given. So Malachi has been called my messenger. He grows up and he becomes God's prophet. So he is God's messenger. So it's almost like God has given Malachi his name saying, he is my messenger. And the reason, one of the biggest themes in Malachi, is that Israel, as a whole nation, are forgetting about God. They forget that God is sovereign and they forget that he's holy. And there's a lot of things that Malachi talks about through his book and through his prophecy um, to do with those things. So that's why, if we flip back to the other one, please, Rob. Thank you. We've gone from disobedience to deliverance, from our from and to this week. And the book of Malachi is split up into six chunks. There are four chunks of judgment, and there are two chunks of hope in the book. So hopefully, by the end of today, you'll have a bit more of an idea what's going on. So when you go home, if you read through, you'll see the chunks jump out at you, and you'll realise how that all fits together. So, the majority of Malachi, the four chunks of judgment come down to these four points. Uh, Unfaithfulness in worship, they've got unfaithfulness among their priests, they're unfaithful in their marriages, and they're unfaithful in their giving to God's work. So, we'll take these one at a time, work through, and just so you're aware, what I'm going to try and do is look at their unfaithfulness, look at God's faithfulness, and see how that applies to us 
in each one. So our like, applications are going to come at each stage rather than all at the end. So just be aware of that if you're taking notes. So we'll move on to worship. So if you've got your Bibles open, uh, Malachi, it's on page 960 in the Red Church Bibles. If, it's not in, if you've not got a Red Church Bible, it's probably on a different page. It's the last one in the Old Testament. So we're going to read a few verses from chapter 1. And we'll read chapter 1, verses 6 to 8. And it says, A son honours his father, and a servant his master. If I am a father, where is the honour due to me? If I am a master, where is the respect due to me? Says the Lord Almighty. It is you, O priests, who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? You place defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. When you bring blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice crippled or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you? Says the Lord Almighty. You almost get the picture that the priests are almost a bit, a bit like a teenager. God says, you've done this wrong. And you go, oh, how have we done that wrong? You get this like, oh, I don't want to tie in my bedroom. It's almost this almost petty idea from the priest. God says, look, you're not doing what's right. And they go, prove it. Show me that I've not done it right. Put in here, part of the Old, Tex- Old Testament uh, worship was to bring your sacrifice to God. And God asked for the firstborn animal from your flock. And he asked for it to be pure, without spots or blemishes. It wasn't to have any broken bones. It wasn't to be sick or ill. It wasn't to have any problems. It wasn't to be blind, deaf, anything. And that God wanted that first pure sacrifice. He said, bring that to me as your offering of worship. Bring it to the temple and kill it there. And offer it up for your sins. Well, there's a first point that I should just make about that. It's for them to be able to do this. God has been faithful enough to bring them out of exile back into the land and give them a temple to sacrifice in. Something that they didn't have. And if, when we were looking at Obadiah, if you remember we said they didn't have a king, they didn't have a temple, they didn't have a land. Well, God's brought them those things back. He's brought them back to the land he promised. He's brought them back to the temple they had for them. And they've got a ruler in the land. So he's been faithful in doing that. And a couple of hundred years later, after they've come back from exile, they're soon forgetting the God that's brought them out of exile. The God that asks them for these things. And they were just bringing to God rubbish animals. And it just seems a bit odd that God can ask them for this one thing they are on the firstborn flock, firstborn animal in the flock, I want it to be pure and holy and good. And they just go, well, it's probably a bit good that one for God. This is a bit. Well, if we if we had to, I could probably send him to the knackyard, but I could just take him to the temple. It'll do, won't it? God will never know. So they get there like manky sheep that's got sort of pick it up by the scruff of its neck and its legs are doing this and its head's on backwards and its ears are on its nose this will do God will be happy with this when he'll if he's not happy with this he should you know he should should just put up with it so they take it in they give it to the priest and the priest at that point should say that is not acceptable that is not what God wants God wants you to worship him from your heart he wants you to bring your best but what does he say 
He says that the priests have been offering defiled food. The priest just goes, oh, cheers. And sacrifices the rubbish animals on the altar. They seem to care nothing about what God thinks of them. They've been put up in this place of authority, the priests, and they just act as if they don't even know God. And then when he compares it to the people around them, he says, when you bring blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice crippled or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? You get this idea that they don't really care about God that much. They just they'll sacrifice anything to God, but when it comes to the person who's in charge of the area, oh, they'll make the effort then. They will make the effort to keep their governor, the people in power happy, but they're not going to care that much about God because, you know, we don't have to lose two animals. You get the fact that we'll care for those people who might you know, impose greater taxes or something like that. But God will forget him, even though he brought our parents out of Babylon into the land he promised them. He's given them the temple back so that we can worship him again. Well, we don't need to give him that much. He'll, he'll do everything. It's all right. There's this idea that the priests are not helping the people to worship faithfully. But then when we look at how God has done these sort of things, how does God fulfil this perfectly? When we look at the Old Testament, because we're sort of people who are living almost in the time of the New Testament, aren't we? Because we're, we're not BC, we're AD. So we're living in the time of the, of the New Testament. When we look back to the Old Testament, we have to sort of see it through Jesus. We can see what Jesus has done to fulfil the Old Testament and understand it a bit like that. So when God makes the offering of worship, when God brings the one offering that he brings, he brings a perfect offering that is pure, that is sinless, and that is good. And he brings Jesus as the offering. Jesus is the offering that God brings. Jesus is God. He's part of the Godhead, the Trinity, and he comes and he's born the baby that we're going to celebrate in a few weeks' time at Christmas. It's going to be that little baby Jesus, meek and mild, that everyone thinks about. And everyone's really happy to accept that at Christmas. But when it comes to Easter, it's a different story. Nobody really wants to hear about the cross. But he was born, he was perfect, he grew up, he didn't do anything wrong. He was God's firstborn. The Bible talks about Jesus being the firstborn over all creation. So Jesus is the firstborn. He's pure, he's perfect, he's sinless. He's not got an ear on his nose. He's not got legs and arms that go the wrong way. He's perfect. And he's the one that is brought by God to be the offering for his people. He's perfect and he's pure. And he comes to earth and he lives his perfect life. He's taken by the Romans, as Carl was mentioning a few minutes ago. And he's scourged and he's crucified. Jesus is the one who is sacrificed by God. And God says, look, when I make a sacrifice, I do exactly what I've asked you to do to Israel. And I go a step beyond all you've been able to do up to now is in sacrificing animals, you've only been able to cover your sin. You've not been able to deal with it. You've just been sacrificing so that your sin can be covered. That one day, somebody will come and they'll die and they'll take away those sins. And the way God does that is God steps into history in Jesus. His life is taken and his blood deals with all the sin that has ever been. And God goes that extra step. God's never asked Christians or Jews throughout history to sacrifice people. There are other uh, religions around the time of the, the people in the Old Testament and some in the New that were performing child sacrifice. But God never asks 
Christians or Jews to sacrifice people, but God says the only way your sin will be dealt with is if I let my son come to earth and die. So Jesus is the pure sacrifice. Jesus is the perfect act of worship that they should have been doing in the Old Testament, that they weren't. They were given rubbish acts of worship. When we look forward to Jesus, we see him do it perfectly. Well, it's a bit of a different story for us when we have to think, how is our worship meant to be focused? How are we, as people living in the time of the New Testament, people who can look back to the Old Testament through Jesus and see the Old Testament fulfilled in Jesus, what should our worship really look like? We're not called to bring animals. I mean, it would be a different story for the baptistry if we were meant to bring animals in every week and sacrifice them and have their blood poured out. You get a picture of the temple in the Bible being this place where blood just flowed out of the the gates of the temple. It It was more like an abattoir than a church. It's a really sort of gory place at times. But in the New Testament, thankfully, we're not meant to do that because the amount of time it would take to clean the carpet would be a nightmare. But if you keep your finger in the book of Malachi and if you flick to Romans chapter 12, you'll see what, as people live in the New Testament, we're called to do with our act of worship. So just the first couple of verses from Romans chapter 12, it says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. So we're not called to come and and slaughter animals. We're not called to come and give our own lives to be killed like Jesus was. We're called to bring our own lives to God. Lay our lives down as a living sacrifice, it says. God says, I want you to bring your life to me, put it out in front of me and say, God, I want you to do with my life what you want to do with it. As Christians, that should be our challenge. Are we going to be people who say, God, look, you've saved me in Jesus. You've done everything that there ever needed to be done for me to be saved, to be brought back to you, for my sins to be forgiven. In response to that, I want to worship you the way you want, which is to say, take my life and do with it what you want me to do. And if God then says, excellent, you're going to Sheffield to be a missionary. There might be some people in Rotherham that wouldn't be too keen on that, but that might be what he says. I have a friend of mine that was... um, yeah, he was trying to work out what he wanted to do and he said he'd like to be a missionary um, and he prayed to God and he said, God, look, I'll go wherever you want. Just, I'll do whatever you want me to do, wherever it is. And he felt something in his head. He, he felt this voice just say to him, did you really mean that, Phil? And he said, yeah. So he spent ages sorting out, um, spent a few months praying about it. He sent an email to his missionary company. When his email came in, another email came in at the same time and he's now living in Nepal as a, a graphics design a graphics designer for a Nepalese company there. There's a mission company out there because he's a graphics designer. They wanted a graphics designer exactly at the same time. He spent a few months out there this year and he's going back for a couple of years, hopefully going to be able to extend it longer. And he's just over the moon that God's answered his prayers. He said, look, I'll go wherever you want. And that is the challenge for us. Are we going to spend our lives saying, God, I'll do what you want me to do. Whatever it costs me, that's what I want to do. Or are we going to say... I might, I might do that, but, but I'm not doing that. I'm, I'm not going to do that. Because when God gave his son, he didn't say, 
I'll, I'll give his hand, but I'll not give, give his legs or anything like that. He said, look, I'll give you my whole son. It was all of Jesus that was killed. It wasn't bits of him. We as Christians should try and give our whole lives to God as an act of worship. So that's our first challenge. Second one is, in Malachi, he then talks about the priests. So if you've got Malachi open, in chapter 2, we'll read the first seven verses of chapter 2. He says, and now, uh, this admonition is for you, O priests. If you do not listen, and if you do not set your hearts to, to honour my name, says the Lord Almighty, I will send a curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Yes, I have already cursed them, because you have not set your heart to honour me. Because of you, I will rebuke your descendants. I will spread on your faces the offal from your festival sacrifices and you will be carried off with it. And you will know that I have sent you this admonition, so that my covenant with Levi may continue, says the Lord Almighty. My covenant was with him, a covenant of life and peace, and I gave them to him. Uh, This called for reverence, and he revered me, and stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and nothing false was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and turned many from sin. For the lips of a priest ought to preserve knowledge, and from his mouth men should seek instruction, because he is the messenger of the Lord Almighty. Well, it sounds fairly damning, really, for the priests of the time of Malachi. When he says, this is my covenant with Levi, he's just saying, look, this was what my covenant with Levi. Levi was like the father of all the priests, We've been looking through Genesis on a Wednesday in our steering team meetings and we've seen some of the stuff that Jacob and his sons got up to. Levi here has spoken of a really like, really impressive guy. Really impressive. The amazing thing is, just as a quick aside, he wasn't that good. And I, you know, he sounds it here, but he's done some awful things in the past before he became the priest that God wanted him to be. There's at one point where... Jacob's daughter, Dinah, she's raped by some people from uh, a nearby town and it's the, the son of the guy who's in charge of the town that does it and they get really cross. Simeon and Levi, two of Jacob's sons, they're not happy with the people in charge. So they go in and they probably look quite furious and, um, and they try and like bargain with them and they say, okay, well, how, what can we do? Um, I'll, 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 I'll marry her. I'll marry her. It's all right. I'll, I'll marry her. I love her. I'll marry her. So they sort of say, well... Okay, you can marry her, but the deal they make is that Simeon and Levi, as you know, good Jewish boys, say all the men in your town have to be circumcised. Which, for the chap in charge's son, he thinks, well, if that's going to save my son's life, that'll, that'll do. So they, all the men get circumcised in the town, and they think, right, that's, that's excellent, we'll go off and uh, carry on, everything's fine. They shake hands with everyone there, and they nip off. So they all get circumcised that day. That night, Simeon and Levi, with their swords, come in and slaughter all the men in the town, because when they're, just after they've been circumcised, there is nothing they're going to do about it. Once they've had that operation, they are in bed for a couple of weeks. There is definitely nothing they can do. And they go in. He's the father of all the priests. But God does a work in Levi's heart. He changes him to be the person who is going to start 
bringing people back to himself, who's going to start offering sacrifices to God, who's going to bring people back to him. And it's just a massive, massive encouragement. When we read through the Old Testament and we see people like David who committed adultery, Moses who was a murderer, to think actually God uses people that are just sinful, that are fallen, that aren't perfect. He can use me. If you read through, you've got Moses who was a murderer, Levi and Simeon, they went and killed loads of people. Like in the New Testament, there's Matthew, he was a tax collector. He was horrible because nobody liked tax collectors, still don't. God used him. All these sorts of people. And then, and then there was Lazarus and he was dead. And God still used him. There's hope for you and me. God can use any of us. If you can use Lazarus, anyway, he can use us. So God made this covenant with Levi. And it says in there that a good priest, now this is what a good priest should look like. A good priest should be one who reveres God. In his mouth he should find good instruction. Somebody who should speak righteousness and should speak right. Somebody who's at peace with God. Somebody who's upright and respected. Somebody who turns other people from their sins. And somebody who is God's messenger. Well, the priests in Malachi's time, as you read through this judgment on them, we find out that they were sinful, they were biased, they preferred some people to others, they preferred some people's offerings to other people's offerings. They accepted poor treatment of God, they allowed any sort of sacrifice to go on in the temple, and they gave poor instruction. And from that we can gather they weren't turning people from their sins because they themselves were allowing sinful behaviour to go on. Well then when we look to God and we see how does God fulfil the category of priests. If we turn, flip the book of Hebrews, which is near the end of the Bible, um, which is a really interesting book, the book of Hebrews. If you get time, have a read through. And we're looking at chapter 8. So we saw in the last judgment that Jesus was the offering that was brought to God. He was the offering, his life was laid down. But not only was Jesus the offering, Jesus was also the priest that brought the offering. So the priest would normally bring the offerings for other people. But Jesus was the priest who brought himself and laid down his own life. So just a couple of verses from chapter 8. The point of what we are saying is this. We do, not, uh, we do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven and who serves in a sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by man. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. And so it was necessary for this one also to have something to offer. So if we jump to verse 8. It says that God found fault with the people and said, The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Wait, I've jumped to verse 8 rather than verse 6. I thought there was something funny there. Forget that. Verse 6. But the ministry Jesus had received is a superior, is superior to theirs, as a covenant of which he is the mediator is superior to the old one, and it's founded on better promises. Apologise, jump to the wrong verse. So we see there that the priests were appointed, the high priests were appointed to bring gifts and sacrifices to God, and that there's one great high priest who sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. We find out that this is Jesus who brought in a new covenant, not the same as the old and the new covenant, it says, is based on better promises from God. So not only did Jesus live the perfect life so that he could be the, the offering for sin, but he lived the perfect life and was willing to take himself and lay himself down. 
so that he could be that offering. And not only that, when we look through Jesus' life, we see that, well, he did speak. Like, good instruction was in his mouth. He lived an upright and righteous life. He turned other people from their sins. We see that in the Gospels. I don't know how many times. We were looking at youth last night. Jai gave us a small talk on uh, God being a forgiver and the story of the man that came through the roof. And God says to him, uh, Jesus there in the crowded room and dust all in his hair from the roof that they've pulled apart and all the people are itching because you know, if it had been now they'd have asbestos all up their shirts. He says, your sins are forgiven. You know, priests are meant to turn people from their sins and Jesus says to this man, your sins are forgiven. We see that Jesus does the things that the priests ought to have done in the first place. So not only does Jesus live as a perfect priest, he's also the perfect offering of worship that they were called to bring in the Old Testament. And then when we look to ourselves, how, how can we liken ourselves to these priests? Well, the easy way to do that is just to say, well, people like myself and Ian and other people who work for a church in a you know, position of authority should, should live in these sort of ways. And you, you're right, we should live with these things in mind. We should live uh, to be people who revere God, who have good instruction in our mouths, who speak righteously, we should be at peace with God, we should be upright and respected, we should turn other people from their sins, and we should be God's messengers. But unfortunately for the rest of you, it doesn't just stop there. The verses that Abby read for us in 1 Peter talk about... If I can find it. says that you... If I find the right verse... says, but you are a chosen people a royal priesthood, a holy nation, people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. He's not just saying there that now people in charge of churches are like the priests of the Old Testament or people who wear dog collars or have funny hats and sticks are like the priests. He says all of you, you are all a chosen people, you are all a royal priesthood. So not only are people who work full time for God meant to, to live these sort of lives, but he says all of us should be trying to live like people who revere God, people who give good godly instruction to other people, who speak righteousness to other people. We should be at peace with God, we should be upright and respected. We should be calling people to turn from their sins and we should be God's messengers for the people that are around us. We should be witnessing to the faith that we say we believe in. We should be guiding other people to Jesus. That is the call of being a priest for God now. So the next one, we jump on a little bit um, onto their marriages. So it's in chapter 2 again, verse 13 to 16. Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because you no longer pay attention to your offerings or accept them with pleasure from your hands. You ask, why? Is it because the Lord is acting as a witness between you and your wife uh, and the wife of your youth because you have broken faith with her? Though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant, has not the Lord made them one in the flesh and spirit? They are his. Uh, and why one? Because he was seeking godly offering, offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not break faith with your wife of your youth. I hate divorce, says the Lord of Israel. And I hate the man covering himself with violence as well as his garments, says the Lord Almighty. There's this picture there that they're sort of in the temple. It says, you flood my house with tears. You flood the altar of my uh, temple with tears. 
get this idea that they're, they're not treating their wives particularly well and their marriages aren't going well. So then they go back to the Lord and they sit in the altar and they like weep crocodile tears and they're just sort of saying, oh, everything's not going really well. And God just says, look, things aren't going well because you're not treating your wives properly. You should be the priests who are there, who are setting an example. You should treat your wife so well that other people should look to that and they should think, that's a brilliant way to live. We'll do the same. But they don't, and then they come and weep crocodile tears in front of God, and God knows their hearts, and he can see that's what they're doing. And the thing is that when we look at marriage, God sets it up in a certain way, that even from the very beginning, Adam and Eve, in the Garden of Eden, their little marriage of those two people, was always there. It was always a representation of Jesus' marriage to the church. Jesus is going to be the perfect husband for his bride, and Jesus is going to make the bride perfect by dying and forgiving the sins of all the people who are in the church. So the Bible talks about Jesus being betrothed to the church and one day there'll be this thing called the wedding supper of the Lamb when Jesus finally marries the church and it'll be the most amazing event in history. But here God says, you're not being people who are mirroring what my son is doing for his people. You're being people, firstly you're marrying the wrong sort of people. You're marrying people I've told you not to marry. You're marrying women from all sorts of other nations. I've told you to stay pure and marry within the confines that I've set. But they're marrying people from outside of that. They're adulterous. Um, The promises they gave to their wives seemed to mean nothing. And they weren't bringing up godly children. That was what God wanted them to do. And that's what they were failing to do. But Jesus is going to be the perfect husband for his wife. I mean, when we look around, we know that as Christians we're not perfect. But through Jesus, through his blood that cleanses us from all of our sin, we know that we're being made perfect in his likeness. We'll never be perfect in this life, but Jesus takes away our sin so that when God looks at us, he sees us as people without sin. And the thing is that Jesus laid down his life so that's the state that we could be in. Here's the challenge. When it it comes to us, and it comes to us... um, being faithful in our marriages, being the people in our marriages that God wants us to be. There are a lot of challenges in the Bible to this. The Bible speaks about this and it says that for men, a responsibility is for your wife is to be pure, you to put her before yourself, that you must love her more than your own life. And it says that because it says, men love your wife like Jesus loved the church. So men, you should be willing to lay down your life for your wife because Jesus laid down his life for the church. And it says that women are to uh, respect their husbands and submit to them because that is what the church is meant to do to Jesus. We're meant to respect Jesus and we're meant to submit to his ways. And that's what the Bible calls women to do in marriage, which is a big challenge. And the last one of the four chunks of judgment in this book are on giving. So if we find chapter 3, verses 6 to 10. I the Lord do not change so you O descendants of Jacob are not destroyed that's just saying that God's saying I don't change and because I don't change my promises to you last forever if I changed you'd be done for because you've been really unfaithful he says I the Lord do not change so you O descendants of Jacob are not destroyed ever since the time of your forefathers you have turned away from my decrees you have not kept them Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Will a man rob God? 
yet you rob me. But you ask, how do we rob you? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you are robbing me. Bring a whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have enough room for it. There again you get the picture of the God saying to the people, look, you've been robbing me, but how have we been robbing you? And he says, by not doing this, but how have we not been doing this? And you get this idea that they don't really seem to get what God's on about. So in the Old Testament, there was this idea that people would bring in their tithes to the temple, so they'd bring in the 10% of their income that they got to the temple. And on top of that, they'd give their offerings, and on top of that, they'd be able to give free will offerings. So if you look at the sort of uh, numbers, you end up, looking at approximately 25% of some of the Old Testament people, that 25% of their income would be given to the temple in worship, including their uh, livestock as offerings and their free will offerings altogether, which sounds like a, a really large sum of money. Now you get your payslip now, and you already see the first number, and then you see how much tax the government have taken, and you think, well, how am I going to live on that? Because the government want all your tax now. But then, if this is how it was then, a lot of their tax would be paid to the temple as well. So... Um, so yeah, they're called to give money to the temple as well as their offerings and their free will offerings. But we already know that they were giving poor offerings, so the offerings they were bringing weren't really worth anything. And they didn't give their tithes to God. They weren't bringing in their money to God to give to his work. And I think part of this is because they didn't believe that when they brought their money to God, they didn't believe that God was either worth it or that when they brought it in, and they sort of put themselves out. They, they put themselves out of pocket. They weren't trusting God enough to say, I'm going to give this to you, trusting that you will provide for my every need. I think they thought, I, I can look after myself. I can cope. If I, if I just keep this, if I keep a bit more cash back for myself, I'll look after myself. I'll be all right. But God says, no, bring in the full tithe. Give your full tithe to me. I think they thought that they were more valuable than God. That if they kept the money for themselves, then they'd be alright. I think God wanted them to start giving to him and to his work to make them more and more reliant on him. And the other thing it did, it provided workers for them in the temple to keep them going. So approximately you could have, if people were bringing in 10% of their income, you could have one like minister to 10 people. And that would be loads. Imagine that, if you had one minister to 10 people, you could imagine the work you could get done if you had, like, for every ten people in a church you had one full-time worker. It would be amazing. Obviously it doesn't quite work like that because not everybody gets a wage and some people are children and they're not working, thankfully. But it would be amazing to have that sort of thing. And giving to God is meant to be a joy and a privilege. But the other thing is, when we look at God, what giving does God give? Does that make sense? When God gives, what does he give? That's a better way of putting it. Well, firstly... God gives us the world to live in. He said, the Bible says that God created it and we've got it to live in, we've got it to, to rule over, to subdue and to look after. He gives us the air to breathe, he gives us food to eat and he doesn't just give us one type of food, he doesn't just give us peas, you get peas and carrots and parsnips and sprouts, whether you like them or not, you'll have them at Christmas, there are cranberries and then there's animals and everybody who isn't a vegetarian probably likes beef. What a great meat that is. God gives us all these things to eat and enjoy. He doesn't just stop with peas, which is excellent, because I'm not that fussed about peas. He gives us water to drink. And then some people take God's fruit 
and turn that into stuff that then makes your water taste different. So you get Ribena. God gives us all these things so we can create other things that make our life even more enjoyable. We have somewhere to live. We have our houses to live in. All these things come down to what people call God's common grace. God gives us all these amazing gifts. That's God's grace to us that we have air to breathe, food to eat, water to drink, Ribena to drink, beef to eat. These are all God's common grace. But then more than that, God goes a step further in his giving. God says, look, I've given you all that. But now I'm going to give you the greatest gift of all. More than any 10%. God gives us Jesus who came and laid down his life and offered his life up as that sacrifice so that we could know God and know our sins forgiven. Well, it's never a popular topic is it, in churches talking about giving. It's always a risky subject. Uh, nobody ever likes talking about giving. I think partly it's our British reserve, so I'll just ignore that and carry on. Our aim as Christians should be to mirror God in what he does. Aim to live and be um, living like Jesus as much as we possibly can. So in 2 Corinthians it says um, that we should be a cheerful and generous giver to God's work. Now it's not always easy to give money because people, especially at times when there's a recession on, there's not a lot of it about. But God calls us to give to him. It's not something that's easy but it's a Bible priority. In the New Testament Jesus is giving instruction to his disciple, to his disciples He says, when you pray, pray like this and give them the Lord's Prayer. When you fast, uh, fast like this, put oil on your forehead and don't walk around going, oh, I'm so hungry. And he says, when you give, give like this. So Jesus isn't saying, if you fancy praying, try this one. If you fancy having a fast now and again, try it like this. If you fancy giving, do it like this. He says, when you pray, so that's something that Jesus expects us to do. When you fast, that's something Jesus expects us to do. And when you give, that's something Jesus expects us to do. And I was once a bit shocked by something. I'd never really thought about it. And it sort of struck me, and I thought, that's quite a good thing to do. Um, it was at my last church. I was talking to one of the guys there who was a couple of years older than me. They're very young. And um, I said, asked him about, I don't even know how it came about, I asked him about something about giving. And he said, oh yeah, what I do is, when I get my wage in at the beginning of the month, or like at the end of the month, the first thing I do is I take out my, what I'm going to give to the church. Which I think, actually, that's such a good idea. And I've never really thought about it that way before. That you get, he got his money, and the Bible says that you give your first fruits, like you give what, something at the beginning. And I often find, if I don't, if I do something at the beginning, it's alright. If I think, well, I'll do it at the end with what I've got left. I've used all that. But if I give it at the beginning, I know then what I've got left to live on. All my words are getting jumbled up in my mouth. But I thought that's a really sensible idea. So, anyway, that's just something that struck me once. So, he said, yeah, he took it out at the beginning and then gave it through the month to the church every week. I thought, that's just a genius idea. I'd never really thought of it like that. But he'd made it a priority in his life. Okay. So these are the unfaithfulnesses that we see uh, Malachi prophesying against in his time. The sort of big challenges today, and um, the question really for us, looking at those, is how faithful really are we? How faithful are we in our worship, in our priestly duties? How faithful are we in our marriages or in our singleness? And how faithful are we in giving to God's work? But I said there were six chunks in Malachi, and that's four, so I do apologise. I thought you were all getting very excited again that that might be very near the end. In the middle of all these things. 
God does something else. So right in the middle of this, see, in the middle, in the middle of this, Malachi brings a note of hope. So if we read from uh, 2.17 into chapter 3, it says, You have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him, you ask, by saying, All who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them. Or, where is the God of justice? See, I will send my messenger, who will prepare the way before me. Uh, Then suddenly, the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant, whom you desire, will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire, or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like pure, gold, uh, like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings and, in righteousness, and the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem, and will be acceptable to the Lord, as in the days gone by and in former years. So I will come near to you for judgment. I will be quick and testify against sorcerers, adulterers, perjurers, against those who defraud labourers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless and deprive aliens of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. So let's just quickly run through these things that he notes here. So firstly, firstly he talks about fire. Jesus will come with a, a purifying and refining fire. I don't know if you know this, but if you get gold and you melt it down, the stuff in it that isn't gold rises to the surface and it's like black muck and you can just scrape it off and you're left then with pure gold in your crucible. I've seen it done. I was very fortunate to uh, be in a jewellery factory in Germany for 10 days when I was doing my A-levels and he melted down some gold. He was making an alloy, so he put a few other bits in it as well. Uh, Melted it down, poured it into this trough but when he melted it down, you can see the stuff and they can just like knock the, the like stuff that isn't gold, the impurities off the top. And he chucked it into this thing and it dried, uh, cooled and solidified. And he took it out and he gave it to me. It was a block about this big, quite thin. He said it's worth about 33,000 euros, that. Um, I wasn't allowed to take it home. But yeah, if you melt it up, all the stuff that isn't gold rises to the top and you can scrape it off. It's like Jesus is saying, look, when I come... I'll be able to purge out, I'll be able to remove all the impurities that are in our lives. But the thing is that this isn't a license for Christians to go around and do things that are wrong that Jesus is going to then have to purge out of our lives. It should help us, it should encourage us, it should make us want to live more like Jesus so that when it comes, when he does it, it'll it'll take less work, it'll be less effort for him to get rid of all these impurities that are going on there. This should call us to be people who are holy. It doesn't sound like a particularly pleasant experience, having your, your life metaphorically put in a crucible, not the one in Sheffield, and like heated up and melted down and all the, the rubbish bits dragged off the top. We should want to be people who live like Jesus, and this is what he's going to do for us. The next one it talks about is... Um, does it say it in here? Uh, in, in the ESV that I was reading this week, it says, like a full of soap. Now, I didn't know what a fuller was. It turns out somebody who cleaned clothes. But in here it says launderer. That makes it a lot easier for uh, people who don't know what a fuller is. So it says it will be like a soap. Jesus is going to be the person who can come, who can wash away the stains and marks of sin in our lives. Whatever they're, whatever they're stained with, Jesus will be able to get rid of it. I heard once that somebody I know, I won't mention their name, but they're married to me, 
spilt some red wine on somebody's carpet. They'd just bought a new carpet. And they couldn't get the stain out. Jesus could get that stain out. Jesus can get any stain out. Any stains that are left by sin, Jesus can get any stains out. They have to buy a new carpet. (laughs) On the insurance. Um, I'll probably be told off later. Um, But yeah, Jesus can get rid of any stains of sin that are left in our lives. Nothing is too difficult for him to get out. And the last bit of this, he talks about he'll purify Levi, and he's not talking about genes. He's saying Jesus will make the priests of his, he'll make them perfect, he'll make them pure, and he'll make them good like they should have been in the beginning. We're his priests now, and we'll be made clean by Jesus, by what he does. Right then. Where are we up to? Okay. And then just to finish, as we come into chapter 4, just to finish this off, it's only a short chapter, we'll read the first three verses. Surely the day is coming, and it will burn like a furnace. All the arrogance and evildoer, and every evildoer will be stubble. And that day, uh, and that, day that is coming will, burn, will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them. But for you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. And you will go out and leap like calves relief from the stall. Then you will trample down the wicked, and there will be ashes under your souls, under the soles of your feet. And the day when I do these things, says the Lord Almighty. I think in this passage there are a couple of mixes. There's a couple of um, bits where he talks about Jesus, his second coming, like his final judgment. But I think there's also some about Jesus' first coming and his life on earth that we see in there. And this is where we're going to sort of take our... Well, we're going to finish around here. I want to share something with you that I've heard this, this passage described like this as we go on to the Son of Righteousness. I've borrowed a scarf for this. It's not because it's cold, but does it suit? I think it probably does. Um, Jesus, we have to remember, was a Jewish rabbi that's why when people came up to him, they said, Rabbi, because he was a rabbi. So um, Jesus was Jewish, he was a rabbi. And lots of rabbis had these things called prayer shawls. This isn't a prayer shawl, this is one of Hannah's scarves. Um, but they would have been a bit similar, maybe a little bit longer. They would have had tassels on the end, um, and their tassels would normally be slightly thicker. You'd have a few strands together, and one final one of blue in the middle. I think there'd be 12 strands. And they'd, when Jewish people would pray in the temples or in the synagogues, They'd pray and they'd sort of like, they'd hold them something like this. And they'd put their prayer shawl slightly over their head. Uh, and they'd do that and they'd pray there so they wouldn't get distracted. It's a bit like closing your hands, uh, putting your hands together and closing your eyes. And they'd then like play with the tassels as they were praying. Which sounds a bit odd. It sounds like you might be distracted. But they were, everything was to remind them of something that was going on. But these bits here, when they did that, these, as you might imagine, got referred to as rabbi's wings because, you know, they're like flappy wings. That's a, <laughs> a good impression for you, just so you're aware of what I was meaning. So they'd be referred to as their wings. And there's this idea in the New Testament, there's a story of the woman who pushes through the crowd, who reaches out and touches the hem of Jesus' garment. She'd been suffering for years and years and years with an issue of bleeding. And it had never been healed. She'd seen doctors and doctors and doctors she just couldn't be healed. She spent all the money trying to sort it out. And she pushed through the crowd 
She touches, says, the hem of Jesus' garment. See, I think it might be one of like the edges, the tassels of Jesus' prayer shawl that he had. And she reached out and she touches him. And the thing is, that somebody who was in that state, that was bleeding all the time, he wasn't well, who was technically was unclean in regards to the temple, if she touched you, that would make you unclean. But when she reaches out and she touches the edge of Jesus' garment, not only does Jesus not become unclean, but she is healed. It's taken her years to try and do this. She reaches out with faith, saying, look, Jesus, I believe that you'll heal me. She reaches out, she touches the edge of his garment, and Jesus makes her well. So she had the faith to push through the crowd, the faith to believe that Jesus could do something amazing in her life. And when she reached out and touched him, we see a snippet of Jesus doing some of these things. He purifies her. He takes her from somebody who can't be with God because she can't go into the temple because she's not well. He purifies her. He brings her back to that possibility of being in relationship with God, going to the priest, taking offerings, taking sacrifices. And there where it says that they'll you know, come out of the, the stores like calves jumping around in the field. You can imagine her if she was you know, well enough and like young enough and agile enough that she'd be that happy that she'd be jumping around with joy, thank, thanking Jesus for what he's done. See, the thing is, it's the same for us today. Whatever state we're in, everyone needs their sins forgiven. Everyone has done things wrong in their life. We all need to have our sins forgiven. We all need our sins to be taken away by somebody who can do that. And the only person who can do that is Jesus. This woman reached through the crowd. She put effort in. She like pushed people out of the way, probably very politely, if she was British. Shoved them out of the way. And she reached through and she reached for Jesus. Jesus knew something had happened. But we need to have that faith that says, look, Jesus, I'm going to work to get towards you. I'm going to push any obstacle out of the way to get to you because you are the only one who can save me. You're the only one who can heal me. You're the only one who can make me pure and bring me back to God because you're the only one who gave the true act of worship by laying down his own life. You're the only true priest who offered up the perfect sacrifice. And one day you'll marry the church and it'll be the most amazing day ever. And Jesus gave everything so that we could have that relationship with him. So our challenge as people in the church today is to live lives of worship that are acceptable to God, to live lives that, repre- like that are similar to that of Jesus. We should be trying to be the priests of God today. We should live in our marriages and in our singleness that represents Jesus and the church. And we should give to God's work because God gives us so much more than we can ever imagine. Hopefully that's something for you to think about on Malachi. And I'll pray and then I think we're going to have a final song. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for the book of Malachi. We thank you for all the things that are in there. Father, we thank you that uh, Jesus is the perfect offering, that he is the perfect priest that gives the perfect offering, that he is going to be the husband of the church, that he's going to make her pure, going to make each one of us pure as part of that and Father thank you that one day Jesus will uh, marry the church and it will be the most amazing day ever and Father thank you that Jesus just didn't just stop her uh, thinking he'd given enough or given a little bit but Father thank you that Jesus went the whole way that he gave his own life after living perfectly and was without sin was unjustly crucified Father thank you that he went that far so that we could have our sins forgiven, even though we don't deserve it. And Father, we thank you that coming up to this time of Advent and Christmas coming up soon, that we can remember the amazingness of Jesus being born as a little baby, and all the way through his life he didn't do anything wrong. 
Father, we thank you for the gift that you give us of Jesus. Father, I pray you'll help us to live in life, live our lives that represent him, that are a good witness to him. And Father, that you'll be pleased with what we do as our offering of worship to you as we lay down our lives as living sacrifices. Amen.